The time to start looking into tomorrow is now. Today, we speak with Scott Chu, Vice President of Sustainability at Train Technologies and Managing Director of the Center for Energy Efficiency and Sustainability. Scott's purpose-driven mission has been responsible for Train's forward-looking sustainability initiatives. And today, Train Technologies' smart solutions support many of the challenges businesses, buildings, and the transport sector face in the fight to decarbonize our future, which we will continue to face in the decades ahead. Scott Chu, Train Technologies. Welcome to Business and Society and the One Planet podcast. Scott, thank you for being a part of this Voice of the CEO executive series that me and I do on Business and Society. Nice to be here. Thank you. So you know, just digging into the different sectors that Train Technologies addresses about decarbonization. You know, every day we rely on energy to power our lives. And today the biggest energy companies collectively make over $1 trillion a year in windfall profits. With the current strain on our global energy systems, how do we wean ourselves off these old systems? And how do we decarbonize our transport cities and atmosphere for a sustainable future? Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to speak with you, Mia, and for the series that you're doing. I think it's highly impactful, and I know that you have a lot of listeners who are interested in these very relevant topics, and there's lots of answers to your question. That's a couple of points that I would make. One is that I think that there are still a lot of myths about what's possible in terms of the impacts of climate change, including things like extreme weather events, heat waves, whatever the list might be, depending on the region. There's a lot of misunderstanding. Do we have the capabilities today to solve solve some of the issues? Or do we have to keep relying on the incumbent historical technologies that we've relied on for generations? And the answer to that is we do have the technologies. We do have the solutions. We do have pathways to solve some of our major issues. And so that brings me to my second point and answer your question. And that would be, why aren't we doing that? So I either have to think that there's just a lot of misinformation. So people are misinformed or we're just lazy. We're just used to doing things in a routine that is very very comfortable for us and there's not been enough pain to make us change or there's not been enough of an opportunity to do something different to change either a technology or a solution. So those are sort of the two barriers. And I know that may be a negative way of answering your question, but that's my viewpoint of why we're still depending on those incumbent technologies. And Scott, I think the train already reduces food loss in the cold chain and also is transitioning out of high greenhouse gas refrigerants. So if you can tell two quick stories, that makes it concrete to the engineering and the technical students that are listening. Yeah, that's right, Bruce. So let me just quickly sort of give the big why behind a company like Train Technologies. And if your listeners aren't familiar with Train Technologies, three big ways that we go to market on the commercial side of the market. So for offices, for institutions like colleges, for universities, for hospitals, for large real estate holdings, we provide a lot of the comfort for those buildings or some part of the comfort system. It could be controls, building automation, could be indoor environmental quality systems. There's a host of things we provide throughout North America, for instance, one out of every two commercial buildings depends on train or some level of its comfort solutions. Very similar in Europe and elsewhere in Asia Pacific. We also provide residential comfort systems and solutions, including home automation. And then last but not least is our transport refrigeration business. Many of your listeners might be aware of the brand Thermoking. Thermoking is available in about 140 countries. We deliver the majority of the fresh food in the world and most of the world's perishables in with our transport refrigeration technologies that either are part of mass transport of those materials or marine transport and sometimes air and bus transport. So 
We are providing a lot to the world and it's around comfort. But to Bruce's question, why do we care? Here's the big why. The big why is this. About 15% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions are from heating and cooling buildings. It takes a lot of energy to heat and cool buildings globally. That number is set to rise, as you know, in a warming world and in a world where people want more access to comfort. And then number two, about 10% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions comes from food loss. And when I speak of food loss, I mean what happens as the food leaves a farm headed to a consumer. I consider food waste what happens once consumers take the food home and we don't use it. Food loss happens in that chain prior to getting to a consumer. And what we see in some countries like Brazil, for instance, we see a tremendous amount of overproduction of food because so much of it is lost en route to the consumer. And so there's great opportunities for greenhouse gas reductions by maturing the cold chain in countries without access. Yeah. So without realizing it, many of us domestically and internationally have been using train technologies in our everyday lives from, I guess, improving the energy efficiency of buildings to minimizing food wastage with smarter delivery systems. That's right. So tell us about what train is doing in developing solutions that will support the challenges businesses, buildings and transport will face in the years and decades ahead. So on the building side, I would say that we have a lot of fantastic technologies that can do a couple of things. One, buildings are just a great opportunity around efficiency. Most of the world's building footprint has been built. We think a lot of times about new buildings and new construction. However, the biggest opportunities around efficiencies, around saving energy, around helping the grid not need to continue to add to the grid, and just around reducing emissions overall would be in helping the buildings, number one, become more efficient. Number two would be applying smart technologies to buildings to help them be smarter or act smarter. So to take the sort of the human quotient out of building management, to automate a lot of the building operations. So many fantastic technologies today can help automate buildings in a way that saves energy, reduces emissions, and talk back to a local electric grid on the supply side so that the grid itself becomes smarter in supplying energy to the territory that the grid is located in. All of this is possible with buildings. And beyond that, we're putting things like thermal storage systems on buildings now. Thermal storage systems are sort of a bridge in between the supply side and the building. Things like ice are made at night in large thermal storage units. And during the day when peak of energy is being used instead of that building, draining the grid system, we're able to melt the ice to cool the building during those peak hours. So you get a building cooling itself in an off-peak situation or in a peak situation. Ice is made in an off-peak situation. And what you get is sort of a, it's a check the box for all of the issues related to energy use. For the grid, it uses energy when it needs to be used at night. For the building, you are able to use less energy while cooling the occupants inside the building. There's an energy cost savings for a building owner. There's an energy reduction for the supply side. And so it's a win across the board. These things are available today. They've been available. It's only now that we've stepped back and we're viewing buildings very similar to how we view a food system. We view it very holistically. If you can view the food system holistically, you can reduce waste. You can actually provide greater opportunities to those who are accessing that system with less waste. And we're doing the same with building. We're sort of stepping back from the building. We're looking at the entire campus. If you have a university listeners, we look at the entire campus, not just the floor in a building, but the entire campus. And we decide how do we best save energy, reduce emissions, and use electricity in a way that's best for the grid and best for the occupants. All these things are possible today. And Mia, I think that to help 
visualize some of the amazing scale of impact that train. First, the number of air conditioners in buildings. Some of Scott's work before showed that by 2050, they're expecting 5.6 billion air conditioners. So if train is the company out there that can make money and efficiency and help those buildings have less greenhouse gas emission, that's going to take the curve of climate significantly down. So to give you yeah. a sense of how smart the thermal storage systems are, they also have these computing systems where like a guy like me just coming out of the hospital from last week, I'm dying to get to the movies and I'll probably go in an afternoon when nobody else is there, right? So train supplies movie theaters with systems that are so smart that they only air conditioning the seat relative to the number of human bodies in the theater. And that makes so much sense because for 20, 30 years, I always used to feel guilty being the only guy in the movie theater and they're air conditioning the whole movie theater for me. So those are the sorts of things that they've thought through around the world already at the scale of 5.6 billion buildings in referred air conditioning. It's amazing what they're doing. I mean, the question that Bruce raises is, can we bend that curve? You know, if buildings are currently responsible for a, a large percentage of emissions and it's only set to rise, can we actually stop the rise and still provide an increased access to comfort as the world warms? And I think the answer to that's yes, but it's to Bruce's point. We're going to have to apply a lot more smart technologies. We're going to have to get a lot more people on board to understand around what's possible. He gave the example of a movie theater, but you could turn that into lots of spaces where people congregate. And all we need are, we need some good data to help the systems operate most efficient way possible. Scott, the transition from those examples, how did you get your firm to commit monies by investing 500 million or more to come up with better refrigerants, better strategies before the market even knew how to demand it. If you talk about that kind of gives a glimpse into your role within the councils and the company. Yeah, I think part of that journey was using some tools, I think maybe the way they should be used, things like scenario assessments with a management team where you think about various scenarios and how they may impact the company's strategy. Those are only powerful if you have the right executives in the room and you believe that the scenarios are possible. If you believe those scenarios are possible and that they might have implications for the company in the long term, then they need to impact the company's strategy. And we did just that back in the 2015 timeframe. We did a collection of climate-based scenarios around what if the Paris Accord was calling for a 50% reduction in emissions by 2030 and another 50 by 2050. There was a lot of science about that brought us to that point. And we were a company of scientists and engineers who poured over that information. And we had some debates about should, what should that mean about the company's strategy? And in fact, as Bruce mentioned, it really turned into a moment for us to think about what's our role in terms of refrigerants. One thing I should mention me is that frame technologies like other comfort providing companies uses refrigerants, which are regulated greenhouse gases as part of our solution. Refrigerants are that cooling agent within a system that helps to reduce the humidity in a building. And those are greenhouse gases. And so we've been very focused on reducing the need for greenhouse gases and refrigerants for decades. And our question to ourselves was, what's our role there on refrigerant transition? You know, should we spend more money developing a faster pathway to better refrigerants? And the answer to that was yes. And then the second question was, can we align our own company's commitments with external pathways and direction like Paris Accord? And we ended up doing just that. We ended up committing initially to $500 million in research and development to aid in the accelerated development of new refrigerants and transitioning to better refrigerants. That money also went to partnerships with universities and other NGOs to help us figure out 
the best pathways for efficiencies and for providing the systems we provide in a way that has less negative impact on the atmosphere. So that was the beginning of a very bold journey that we've been on now for almost a decade. On that eight-year journey, how long were you at Train before you started leading those councils across those eight years? In 2010, we began thinking through what does sustainable practices look like and what would that mean to the company? And so we started our first councils in 2011 with external advisors and really plotting out, well, how do we navigate integrating sustainable thinking into how we do business, not as a sidetrack or some parallel venture, but how do you change a company? You have to fundamentally change the processes of the company and how it goes to market, how it develops its products and how it does business. And that's the hard work that we were doing in that 2010 through, I'd say, 2013 timeframe that led us to a set of climate scenarios in 2014-15. What I love about these solutions is it's really circular thinking and it's rethinking how these things can be integrated. Like traditionally, the heat from data centers has been discharged into the air, but now the heat from the cooling systems can be used for heating nearby buildings, homes, public building spaces, or even local swimming pools. So it's truly circular thinking, and we're not losing money, just reusing what we already have. Right. You raise a good point, Mia. You know, we have called, there's a lot of industrial processes, and even the way we've heated buildings in the past, where we actually use the term waste heat. And it's funny because nowhere else in society do we name something waste, whatever, and we think that's okay. We always go after the waste, but heat is one of those things that we always have just known for years that, well, there's some waste heat from this process. What we're doing is we're turning that on its head and finding a way to take waste heat. And we won't be calling it waste heat much longer because it's no longer wasted. It'll then just become heat that's used for energy to provide something to the building, maybe energy to power the systems of a building. But we are doing that. We're also thrown out the old way that this was all done in buildings. So we're all across Europe now. We are applying special systems. In the past, you always cooled a building with a system and you heated a building with a system. Both systems ran separately and independently. And often you had to use both systems together. So in other words, as you cooled a building and parts of the building, would remain too cool. And so you would have to use some of the heating to rewarm parts of the building. And it was uh, two systems running, not in parallel, but in silos doing two different jobs. We've thrown all that way of doing it out. We now have a combined heating and cooling cycle system. One system applied to the building with integrated technologies and smart controls that now can do all of those things that have been done in two systems in the past. And we're able to see, we're seeing 300 to 400% efficiency improvements, amazing amount of efficiency improvements. We completely take fossil fuels out of the building. No longer are fossil fuels needed to heat the building. And building owners love it. Many buildings in Europe, especially retrofits, did not have cooling systems. They may may have just had a heating system that was depending on fossil fuels. Now the combined system provides free cooling for that building as well. So you're getting, so it's like a win for building uh, building owners across the board. They're seeing reduced energy. They're seeing no fossil fuels used for the system itself. And at times they're getting cooling that they may not have had in the past. So we're talking about retrofits that come with some huge upside. 
Now, Mia, one of the real benefits of watching Scott present these advances to the 40 companies in my annual corporate affiliates program is we've been able to get an early hint about what he's doing. But when he presents to those pure companies like BP or Merck or five or six others we'll get to at the end of the interview, he's so modest that he never talks about how he discovered the skills within himself. So Scott, I know that you grew up on a family farm and you were the first to go corporate. I'm particularly interested for the sake of the new generation. When did you realize you had this executive potential to go from family farm to large, complex global companies? And what do you want the future generation to know about that discovery? Because hopefully we can get to the Gigaton Challenge by finding another thousand Scott Jews. Yeah, I mean, uh, anyone that knows anything about farms, number one, is you know that reduce, reuse, recycle, that's part of the ethos of every farm for many, many generations. So you grow up thinking that way naturally. There's no such thing as waste on a farm. Everything is reused, uh, recycled, reduced. That's number one. So that's sort of an ethos for generations. Number two, though, is that there's a mentality around, are you curious enough to fix a problem? And I think that's what anybody starting out young in career, I often talk about that. You know, what you have to be curious about your role in solving a riddle, solving a problem. And I think we all have a role here for people like you, Bruce. It's about connecting dots among companies and our people to solve it together because we do need sort of a systems approach to solve it all. But, you know, every individual also has a role to play. And I think you have to find a way to be curious enough to find out what your role is in solving something. And And if it's so provocative, Scott, I remember your quote of the American astronaut, Jim Lovell, in one of your presentations where you quote him saying, there are people who make things happen. There are people who watch things happen. And there are people who wonder what happened, right? Yeah, exactly. What a great quote. Right. What is it that enabled you to become the executive that made things happen? I think curiosity and maybe a way of helping people break down complex situations and think about small steps. You know, I think most things can be simplified. A lot of these issues are complex issues. Many times on the face of things, we see it's too complicated and we can't wrap our head around it, i.e. we can't solve it. But maybe there is a piece of this we can solve. So I'm always looking for the, how do we simplify this into something we can solve today? It's sort of the eating the elephant. You know, how do we eat an elephant a bite at a time? And it's the same with these types of big problems like climate impact. I think that they can be solved, but what do we need to do today to help do that? And part of my role has always been helping the management team not get too hung up about the long-term journey ahead. It's more about what can we do now, this month, this quarter, this year that puts us in the right pathways. We started a program seven or eight years ago. We had a pathways educational program within the company that we called One Step Forward. And we called it that because our view was that taking one step in a journey doesn't get you very far. But with taking 50,000 steps, you know, you're on your way on the journey. Well, a company with 50,000 employees, if everyone takes a step to You know, we've made some headway here. And that was the view is that everybody in the company, every person, no matter their role in the company, HR professional, a factory worker, someone who's out selling our solutions, everyone in the company has a role to play in these solutions. And I think that anybody in this space that I work in, that sort of has to be our view, no matter the company we're in. It can be a technology company. It can be a manufacturing firm. It can be a consumer-oriented company. I think the attitude has to be, what's everyone in the company expected to do to help us solve these big issues. And so that's the role. 
I love that because it's yeah. got positive momentum. So when you started at Train, you now mentioned they have 50,000 technically gifted engineers, architects, and analysts. When you started, how many were there? And kind of give us some numbers. Like many companies, we've had quite a change. We actually created the company and brand Train Technologies as the pandemic was kicking off in March of 2020. We spun off our industrial businesses for a variety of reasons. Some of them were sustainability-oriented reasons. And the company we created was the new Train Technologies that Bruce just mentioned. You can find more information at franktechnologies.com. And that Uber brand of our family of brands is the enterprise that's providing all these solutions that I mentioned. And we've wrapped the entire purpose of a company around sustainable progress. We were given this great gift, a moment where we could launch a publicly listed Fortune 100 company that has a purpose wrapped around a sustainable progress. And we have these, you know, our slogan is not just some clever provocation. This boldly challenge what's possible for a sustainable world has a lot of meaning for our people. I think it is sort of the way we think about innovation. It's the way we think about customers. It's the way we think about our commitments. And that is this bold, boldly challenge what's possible. I love this thinking that we are a company where we want to get in rooms with our employees or with customers, with suppliers, and to boldly challenge what's possible. A great example with suppliers is that two years ago, there was no such thing as low carbon steel in the American market. We work face-to-face with our suppliers, U.S. Steel and Nucor, and they both now are offering a low carbon steel manufactured in a new way for the American public. And we're working with European suppliers now in this movement towards decarbonizing the material side of our business and material side of our products. It's possible because we began to do that whole boldly challenge what's possible by sitting in a room and finding out what really is possible for reducing the carbon and embodied carbon of our products in the big materials that we use. And we're going to have some even bigger announcements around material decarbonization later this year. It seems Train is well positioned to continue to drive meaningful and measurable change in real world conditions across many sectors. And in terms of the gigaton challenge and everything, what can you reveal? Well, I think that the next big hot area for any company that makes something, if you manufacture anything for the public, the next big area that we all are moving into is what about the supply chain? Your top supplier, where you're spending the most money purchasing materials for the products, what are you doing about that? And, you know, there was this move a decade or more ago about, do you know who your suppliers are and where their locations are? We've moved way beyond that now. We're now going very deep into how do you manufacture? Where's the source from? And are there alternatives? A great example would be, we don't use recycled copper in our products currently. We use a lot of copper. It's mined from the earth, predominantly in South America. So the question would be, why are we using recycled copper? I mean, that'd be a legitimate question, but the answer is a bit more complicated. One is, we're not sure there's enough recycled copper in the world for us and others who might want it. Number two is, we haven't tested products using recycled copper to know if there's any trade-offs. Is there less quality, less reliability? Is it just as safe? We don't know, but we're putting it in products now, and we have a team testing products using recycled copper. If you take every material like that, it's a similar set of questions that have to be answered. And there are companies like Train Technologies who are doing the work to answer those questions so that we can either move out of the incumbent material completely or we find a new alternative with zero trade-offs. Our research has always been around how do we reduce negative trade-offs? When we think about refrigerant transition, many people call us and go, hey, just move to natural refrigerants like water. Uh, moving to water as a refrigerant has a loss of efficiency of roughly 50%. So that's not really a great alternative, which is why we don't use that. We don't use ammonia because there's a trade-off around safety. Ammonia can be very toxic and a release of an ammonia cloud 
inside of a building would be harmful to inhabitants of the building. Therefore, the negative trade-off is not worth us moving to ammonia as a refrigerant. Our research is always around how do we continue to provide the solutions we provide and do that in a way that comes with as few negative trade-offs as possible. I'd rather have only positive outcomes and we minimize all of the negative trade-offs. Are you doing that in partnership with any other global giants or are you doing this as a leader on your own? No, we're doing it in some partnerships, both with the industry as well as outside the industry, Bruce, along with some NGOs. So how can we actively engage in international forums, collaborate with regulatory bodies and share insights and best practices with our global counterparts to create a conducive, to create a conducive ecosystem for future growth? There's a lot happening in this space. This is a very fast evolving space. I would say that the move to net zero emissions is giving rise. I mean, it's been capturing a lot of media headlines and I think there's a lot of misinformation about what's really happening. But I've seen some up close examples recently, some pilots that are happening around things like carbon sequestration. That's really mind blowing. Just And it goes back to what you just mentioned, Mia. It's like the simplest ideas that have never been tried before are now being tried and it's, it's effective. Things like a company I recently was with who are taking corn stalks that are left in the field and they're collecting those and through a pyrolysis without using fossil fuels, they are essentially squeezing the carbon out of the stalks, turning it into a liquid carbon that can then be re-injected into the earth into abandoned oil wells. And so it's a complete cycle, taking a plant waste and turning that into liquid carbon that's then re-injected into the earth. It's so exciting to the usage of those biomass residues. These things are moving to scale now. There are companies that have membranes that can be placed on boilers that heat buildings and the membranes can take any kind of heat that in the past would have been wasted and turning that into carbon that then can be placed back into the earth or used in some other way. Fantastic innovations are happening. Our innovation team is completely at 100% just tracking the fantastic developments in this space of reducing emissions in the built environment and in transport, I should say. You know, the transport sector is a bit ahead of buildings in terms of electrifying. You know, we've had a good decade of advancements on the transport sector. We've had some great technologies that have happened. We've had a few companies like Rivian and Tesla that have shown the world that there are very few trade-offs in moving to a vehicle and the infrastructure is finally developing. And with the new IRA funding and countries like the U.S. will find funding needed to build infrastructure even better. The buildings and building environments are a bit behind transport, but it's now the next big one. And I would say it is the one with the greatest untapped potential in terms of emissions reduction and energy reduction. So there's been a lot of focus on transport where it should have been. But I think now we have to turn our attention to the next big opportunity. Like supply chain. I mean, after the supply side energy, which I think it was last year that renewable energy exceeded the capacity of fossil fuel energy being placed on the grid in 2022. The vehicles have certainly had fantastic benchmarks and milestones. Buildings are the next big opportunity. And I was wondering, with the Inflation Reduction Act, has that helped accelerate some of your projects? I don't know if we're seeing the impact yet. The money doesn't start flowing until early this fall to the states. We see the IRA funding as an accelerator for accessing some of the technologies that right now, it's probably going to give us a, a really nice acceleration. One, there's a high interest around what the solutions are and how they should be applied to the buildings. Number two is the IRA funding will offset some of the premium that may be necessary, certainly some of the installation cost. And number three is more and more building owners and homeowners 
are going to be interested in upgrading their buildings because of IRA funding. So we see it as a very nice accelerator and doing all the right things to decarbonize buildings. You've done an excellent job of telling us who TRAIN is and how they work. I think what's interesting to me as a social historian is that the world has passed judgment on TRAIN and Ingersoll Rand in a positive way. So it's not only an active, bold player, but I'd like to talk a little bit about indices that are objective and outside of the company that they're winning notice of. So when it comes to citizenship, I will always believe that some corporations know that they're in society and their social response companies rather than just we do everything we want to do and make a profit. So four indicators of some of the train successes is they're in Forbes in 2022, they were recognized as one of the world's best employers. So pure corporate people give them award. But interestingly enough, there's another group that's about diversity and disability and equality, a progressive group where they're also ranked top. So you get both the corporate and the social ranking. There's a group that certified them in 2022 for their database work. So in other words, they're not deceiving the public, they're informing and persuading the public. And then for 11 years, they've been listed as one of the most admired companies. So that's on the social side. In order to do my homework, I looked at also how they're recognized in what we call competing on sustainability, or what I'm calling in my new books, the path to climate competitiveness. You know, sustainability is such an abstract concept, it takes third parties to tell you if you're on your right road. So for 12 consecutive years, train during the years that Scott's been one of the key executives there, they performed in the 97th percentile of the capital goods industry, right? So Dow Jones, another capitalist system. Now, there's a more progressive element that when I do my investments, I look at just capital, not just the Fortune 500 or the Russell 2000, my wealth advisors know that I want to go progressive. So I look at a group called Just Capital. And Just Capital, I mean, when you really analyze their metrics, they are hard on companies. And they've ranked Train as 18th out of a listing of just 100. So the 5,000 stocks you can invest in, they're 18th of the top 100 at Just Capital. Not easily earned. When it comes to a group that I don't know enough about, but maybe Scott, I can open it up to explain it. Eco Vadas. What is Ecovadis is a firm that gives a grade to companies on how transparent you are with all of your data that might be helpful to your customers. And we have a lot of customers, obviously, who want to attach our data to their own data so they have a full understanding of their footprint and impact. And Ecovadis grades how transparent the company is. So when we do the Voice of the CEO series, what we're really trying to do is show these new executives that communicate not only to the market and not only to investors and not only about technology but also on citizenship. And I think we have in Scott, a person who really embodies that competing for good standing in society. I would say that the ratings and rankings of a company are signals about how serious the company is. And I think they are relevant for our discussion. Those companies who are missing from the ratings, they should wonder why are they missing? And that's a fair question. And those who get ranked highly, you should ask what's different. And I think that's the whole ethos behind ratings and rankings. And I appreciate you raising it. And Scott, I wanted to reserve to what I would properly call, as a social historian, the genius of this company's view. Because it's not just the 50,000 people within the firm, it's also their sense of the megatrend that are troubling the world. So clearly the big one is climate change. I mean, we're here talking to Scott because he's on the path to climate competitiveness. But 
They've noticed continuing megatrends like urbanization and resource scarcity. You're also looking at digital connectedness, and you're also looking at indoor environmental quality and just the pure demographics of the people in the building. So since they are database, they can see where the world is building. They can see where the world is going because they're really looking at it from a global perspective. So many troubling things. You're good at making complex things simple again, right? That's an yep. overwhelming. That normally causes headaches in people to think yeah. about megatrends. It's wonderful that you do it, but is there something we're missing and how do you drive change based for innovation advantage based on all those megatrends? I don't know, Bruce, I think corporate leadership has had some eras behind it, some phases, whatever you want to call it. I think we're entering a new era of what we would call great corporate leadership. And the one just prior to this one would have been the one around purpose-driven. There's a lot of companies who are wondering, do we have a greater purpose for society? Which is a great question for a company to have, no matter if it's a small, medium, or large company. The one before that was more the integration era. We were trying to integrate a lot of these concepts. You mentioned these megatrends like climate change. There were companies, including my own, where we were wondering, as I mentioned earlier, how do you integrate the fact that climate change is happening with our company strategy and with our product design? And an early 90s era would have been sort of the harm reduction, just do less harm, sort of whether it's environment or people. And so we've come through all of those eras to a new one. And it's directly related to the megatrends that you mentioned. I would call the regenerative era, where we're asking this question that my friend Andrew Winston, in his latest book on net positive, was asking, can a company improve the well-being of all of its stakeholders and constituents in everything it does? And that's a lofty goal. And we could debate whether or not that's the right mantra for a company, the right strategy for a company, but it certainly is provocative enough to wonder, can a company move away from the incremental less harm days to something that's regenerative, acknowledging that maybe companies like Train should rethink to dig up the earth for materials to put in products, and we find another way that's better overall. And I think that companies like the one I'm with are getting more comfortable thinking through that way. And that's a good thing. And there are a lot of companies, I think, in the same place that we find ourselves, and that's willing to think through that question. And every one of those megatrends that you mentioned, I think they matter. Do we think that resource scarcity matters? I think it matters. And so I think that a company like Train Technologies that acknowledges that megatrend should a team of people tasked with how do we move away from needing those resources that are scarce. If urbanization is happening and there are things like heat islands that are happening in cities, because we know that many studies globally have shown that cities are just hotter. There are more buildings, there's more concrete, there's more pavement, there are more people, there are more machines. They're just hotter. And many times within a city, there's a heat island. Unfortunately, the people that are most at risk in the city, those who may be without housing, those who may be socioeconomically compromised, they're the ones who are typically within that heat island. And so what we're doing is we have a bad problem that's getting worse for our population. And so that gets right to urbanization-related issues. So how do we solve those issues? We know the issues of climate change you mentioned. Thankfully, many companies are making some progress in that area. But then there are other issues, too, that you mentioned. We think all of those are worth having a team focused on how does our company and the industry that we're in, how do we move away from that and begin a regenerative look at solving the issue? That's my answer to the big issues and how do we take them down to solutions.
Scott knows that I used to be a provocative professor, and he knows that I'm also a colorful facilitator. So when my executive MBAs used to be getting bored on Thursday and Friday because they already work 50-hour weeks and they were taking my classes, I would say, you know, when I think of the average executive, they're like a dog underneath a rug, snarling, right? And that would get their attention because these were middle managers that wanted to become top executives. I think what we've heard in the last 50 minutes is the opposite of that. We've heard from Scott, who knows how to compete vigorously, but above the rug. That's why they win the Transparent Awards, right? They're not snarling. They may be barking at certain issues. You know, if you did an empirical search, Scott, of 80% of the world's opinions about executives, they would present as extremely aggressive, not very friendly. And I think executives have to break down their prejudices. And I think you can help them do that by just saying the things you said. Thank you. Well, Bruce, I think one of your points, you said climate competitiveness. I, I love that concept. Roger Ballantyne calls it climate capitalism. Yes. And Roger talks about it in terms of what's wrong with making money solving one of the world's greatest problems. And there's nothing wrong with that. Actually, that's where the excitement comes from. And that's why, you know, you just talk about MBAs and executives. We need to invert everything so that we help them understand how this is an opportunity that's directly connected with capitalism. And whoever is the first to solve some of the big issues related to some of these megatrends, they win. And they win for society and they win for their own career and for their company. So that's a very exciting provocation. Indeed. And also, speaking of this ethos of being regenerative and providing access to all, you know, in 2020, as we were all going through the beginning of COVID, of course, your transportation vehicles and the coolants were yes. used. Just tell us a little bit about that, because that's really being of service. Yeah, that, that was, Mia, thanks for asking that one. This story is, roughly tells itself. For many years, we had a technology as part of our Thermal King business that was used primarily to transport sushi-grade tuna from Japan to the mainland U.S. and elsewhere. And you typically transport that extremely cold, like minus 70 C. And hardly no one else would have needed anything that cold ever. And so it was a very small niche business for the company. One of those that's almost runs on automation. It doesn't change from year to year until something like a global pandemic happened. And until a company called Pfizer invented a vaccine that required minus 70 to transport the vaccine safely because they were extremely perishable. And uh, the only way to transport them great distances was to get it to minus 70. Now, minus 70 is colder than the surface of Mars. And so it, it does take a lot of energy and it does take uh, the technology to do that safely. So our innovation teams got their heads together and found a way. How do we turn these marine containers or sushi into something that could transport vaccines to the entire world? And we applied that technology in a way that we provided all of the COVID vaccines from the Pfizer company globally to countries that were had access to it. And of course, that has also jump-started a business that we now call the life sciences, where we're doing more and more perishables that are in the medicine and medical field. We purchased a company called Ferrar Scientific, and Ferrar Scientific had a very special spot where they had refrigerated machines for perishables that were of a large scale, yet they could be moved. So think military bases, hospital systems, city, municipal level, where you need lots of access to things like vaccines in one spot, yet maybe later you need to move it away. We now can provide that to the world too. So 
That's also a great story around how something like a pandemic, to Bruce's point, might find you might find yourself at the intersection of innovation and a solution that provides that climate competitiveness that he mentioned. I love that adaptability and that quick thinking, and it's saving lives as well as saving the planet. It is. Yeah. So as you think about the future and education, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I mentioned earlier, Mia, this need to be to stay curious. I think all of these big problems have solutions and they're never one solution. It's always a collection of solutions. And therefore, yeah, I think we need a collection of people and ideas. And so that's a great thing to keep in mind. The other thing is that you need a wide network. Bruce is a great example of somebody who is interested in lots of people, lots of companies, lots of interests. And you really need a wide network because it's through a wide network where you learn, grow, and I believe come up with the best solution or whether we're talking your career or solution for your business or a solution for the planet. Yes, that gives us an insight into the strong leadership principles and forward thinking that Train has invested in. Thank you, Scott, too, for your empowering passion, for sharing your commitment to decarbonization, environmental innovation, integrating sustainable thinking, and combining profits with purpose that benefits the planet as a whole. Thank you for adding your voice to Business and Society and One Planet Podcast. Thank you, Mia. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Mia. This interview was conducted by Bruce Piasecki and Mia Funk. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Andrew Green. Digital Media Coordinator was Julia Rhodes. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening.